welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace here again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Dr. Mark Bubbs to discuss the science of health and performance. Dr. Bubbs is a naturopathic doctor, speaker, and performance nutrition lead for Canada Basketball. Dr. Bobbs is also the author of two books, The Paleo Project and the recently released Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Mark also hosts the Dr. Bobbs Performance Podcast, connecting listeners with world-leading experts in human performance and health. Dr. Bobbs regularly presents at health, fitness, and medical conferences across the globe and consults with professional sports teams in the NBA, NFL, NHL, and Major League Baseball. He practices in both Toronto, Canada, and London, England. Mark, my old friend, welcome to the show. How are you, man? I'm fantastic, Dane. I appreciate you guys carving out some time to have me on. Well, thank you, because you're in a different time zone, so yours is far more challenging, and you have a full house um, <laughs> to take care of on top of your full practice. The full house is asleep, so we're good to go. It's rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you've been in practice for a couple decades, and you've worked with countless athletes. You've now published two books geared towards athletic performance. What are some of the biggest changes in your approach that you've taken over the years? Oh, that's a good question to kick things off here. I mean, <laughs> we're getting deep into things. <laughs> so I try to ease me in here. So, um, Start with the hardest one. It's, 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 it's just been fascinating. I mean, I think for me, like a lot of people in the training space, nutrition space, you know, you grow up playing a lot of sports and you enjoy exercise and getting interested in nutrition. And for me, that was kind of getting sick a lot in high school with, you know, what now I know is more kind of an overtraining, overreaching issues and not fueling properly and, and so I got interested in, you know, nutrition and, and movement and, and doing my undergrad, I was interested in going into medicine. And at the time, this is, you know, aging myself here, but yeah, 20 years ago, looking at what GPs were doing and obviously visits are really short. And back then there was really no discussion around what you're eating, how you're moving or any of these kind of type of things. And so, you know, that was pretty disappointing actually at that time. And so that's when the classic, uh, I think I'll just take a year off after university and do my undergrad in uh, integrated sciences, actually trying to like get this collection of, of different upper level sciences to understand what's going on in biochemistry and exercise and everything else. But at the end of the day, I wasn't really sure where, where I wanted to go with this. And so, you know, take a year off, turns into two or three traveling around. And then uh, for me, that kicked off the interest in, I got into training and eventually got into naturopathic medicine to be able to use more of those tools. And so I think to circle back to your question, I mean, I think it's just been really fascinating to see with obviously with the internet and the growth of things like podcasts of just how nutrition's really touched a lot of different uh, areas of health now. You know, in medicine, it's common now that the GPs and docs are thinking about nutrition when they're looking for to support their clients. And obviously in training, even going back 10, 15 years, it wasn't, you know, really on the radars of a lot of strength coaches. They were still after how do we make people stronger? And there's obviously some discussion on nutrition, but nothing like today. And so I think it's pretty cool just to see how the research has come along and how, you know, I'm sure as obviously as you guys see as well with your clients, whether your general population, you know, we're just trying to feel better, look better and then survive the grind of daily life. Or if you're an athlete, you can really push the boundaries with nutrition. And we see that with, you know, guys like Roger Federer at 37 winning majors and crazy Serena Williams at 38. And then, you know, guys like Steve Nash who played in the NBA to their 40 when they really, you know, at six foot one and, and playing in the NBA, that's, that's saying something. So 
so it's been pretty cool to, to see that. And so I think that's been, um, you know, a really rewarding thing to just see how all these lifestyle things have really become hot topics now. And this whole topic of athlete health is actually a huge space now of how do we keep athletes healthy, you know, the mental emotional piece for athletes. And, and again, these things were just not talked about, uh, you know, a decade or two ago. Yeah. It's, uh, almost like the longevity of it all has really dialed into the lifestyle factors that were overlooked. Yeah. And I think now, I mean, you know, so much research around exercise, um, performance and training load and understanding training load and athletes. And then, you know, in the last three, four years, it's like, well, what are they doing in the other 22 hours of the day? And so all of a sudden <laughs> yes. it's life load, like the stresses of home, the stresses, if you're a collegiate athlete, are you sleeping enough? Like you start to realize, you know, we can't control, we don't know what's going on in those other hours. And even when we get back to a nutrition discussion, you know, these gold standard studies where they're doing doubly labeled water and we know exactly how many calories are being burned, you know, and then in one of the studies I was talking with uh, Dr. Liam Anderson, who does a lot of work in professional soccer, football, and, you know, one of the players had some family in town and his energy expenditure went up by 600, 700 calories. And so it's, it's these things <laughs> that we just can't control that, that are part of life and part of this, you know, complex environment that we're all trying to understand. And I think that's uh you know, the cool part of, of being a, in, in fitness and training or nutrition or, or working with chronic conditions is that there's a lot of complexity and you've got to, you got to sift through and, and, you know, we're human at the end of the day. So people make decisions not really based on logic. Right. And so how do we, how do we support them and all these emotional decisions? And so it's cool that, that the problems that we struggle with in the general population are similar problems that people, even the best of the best struggle with. Right. And so uh, you know, trying to come up with some of those solutions is, is, uh, is pretty fun. I like that you highlighted that cause it is fun. We, we believe the same thing. And, um, in terms of like those little challenges and, uh, human idiosyncrasies being some of the key things that we may need to address. And one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Sharon Kelly, she said, everyone's just looking to feel a certain way. Um, and so that's why emotion can drive a lot of decisions, whether you're a high performance athlete or not. For but sure. that said, we had a question about the active individual that uh, Dane's going to highlight. In the excerpt of the uh, the book Peak, it says Dr. Buzz's performance protocol is for the elite athlete, active individual, strength coach, nutritionist, or practitioner. Now, I just like to highlight the term active individual. You know, we are moved daily. Nice. <laughs> and we firmly believe that daily movement is the cornerstone to human health. And then if you're not moving, pretty much all other points are moot. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there with recovery and that, but what are your thoughts on that little piece of daily movement for the general person? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's key for the general person, even the elite athlete, right? We see now it's just movement based prehab and all these types of things, but I think, you know, movement's crucial. I was actually just at a conference today, uh, football league managers association, and it's, uh, had some corporate speakers coming on this lady i wish i could remember her name now she wrote a book called super fast and she'd interviewed a bunch of the top ceos and upper executives and the, the common theme across all of them one of the major major common themes was that exercise was a non-negotiable like they needed to have movement in their day in order to think clearly in order to decompress and and get away from you know the busyness and the manicness of their of their day-to-day -day lives at work and of course you know being on the health side of things just the the benefits of movement, whether you're talking aerobic fitness, which is a, a fantastic, you know, very strongly associated marker with healthy aging, 
whether it's strength, which is another terrific marker for healthy aging, maintaining lean muscle mass, which is another great marker. So this it's, it's just so baked into the cake of we've always moved, you know, we had to move to survive. And I think, I think that's part of the, one of the problems or challenges we get is that technology has all these amazing things to offer us. But oftentimes there, were, there are these elements where it's taking movement out of our lives. Like you see how even buildings are designed to make us take elevators and escalators all the time. You know, here I'm over here in London in the UK and there's a subway station with about a hundred steps on the way up and there's not a single person taking the stairs. And yet everyone tells me they don't have any time for their workout. It's like, well, hey, I got a workout for you. It's it's 45 seconds and it's going up those stairs, you know, <laughs> when you get home every day. Like that's a great place to start, right? And as you guys know, you know, Dr. Martin Gawala down in McMaster University has got some terrific hit studies showing that even one bout of 20 seconds, I mean, talk about taking it down to its like minimal dose, right? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And we, we call that sourcing movement with our clients um, to try to show them that, okay, you don't have time to go to the gym. That's fine. But here are all the areas in your life that you may have outsourced movement, including like carrying your own groceries. But on that note of convenience, we feel like the same has been said for food. So even mm-hmm. getting pre-chopped veggies and all these uh, food delivery services, even if they're delivering their groceries, like all of that is conveniently allowing us to do other things, but it is taking away a type of movement that we used to naturally have because we're hardwired for movement. We're hardwired to also eat. So we used to have to move to go get food and to make the food and so on. So with that convenience, what are some of the challenges that you meet as a naturopathic doctor working with people who are ill or on the brink of being ill or are low energy, whatever it is that they're suffering with and the food element, because right now we've got a lot of convenient food and processed food out there. We definitely do. And it's um, in researching the book, there was a, some facts that came out around the percentage of household spending on ultra processed food. And for me, this kind of really highlighted what's going on in places like the UK, which are actually very similar to America and Canada, and that 50% of household spending is on ultra-processed food. Wow. And that comes out of a classification called the Nova classification, Carlos Montero's work from uh, University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And in London, you take a train for two hours, you're in Paris, and you step out of the train station, and now 14% of household spending is on ultra-processed food. And you think, geez, how did I go from one place to the next, and all of a sudden, you know, the amount of money that we spend on things that come in boxes and bags has absolutely plummeted. And mm-hmm. when you look around the Mediterranean, it's actually very similar in, in, in Italy and in Spain and Portugal is like 10%. And so it's this idea of, especially in today's environment, when we think of, it's almost like vegetarian versus consuming meat. Yeah. And I think that's, that's still not going up high enough. I think if you go all the way up to 30,000 feet, the focus should really be on, are you eating processed food or real food? Whether or not that real food's animal or vegetable, that's a different discussion. But I think that's a good place for a lot of people to start because, yeah, you're right. I mean, processed food is is a problem and you can have a either side of the coin. You can have a vegan vegetarian diet that's full of processed food or, uh, you know, or an animal based diet. And, and I think that's a really uh, important place to start because those types of foods add more calories. They're typically going to be more, you know, exert a greater blood glucose response. You, know, you get less of a thermic effect of food as well when you eat processed food, so it doesn't cost your body so many calories to process it. You know, I think all of us, you just you get hungrier more frequently in between, and so yeah. I think that's a big 
you know, if you talk about that convenience piece, I think that's part of the, how do we, how do we manage that, mitigate that? And, you know, I like what you said before around, you know, sourcing the movement. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize that those small steps are just fine to take, right? They always think they need to do this huge transformation when, you know, you're offering these solutions on a movement side. And again, if we talk nutrition, as you mentioned, like, yeah, frozen vegetables, fantastic. Yeah. Go for it. You're like, you don't have to buy fresh vegetables. You, you're almost getting exactly the same amount of nutrients and frozen, and then you can keep them in your freezer so they don't go bad. You know, I mean, that's a great first place to go. And that all of a sudden you've got a nice array. And, you know, if you're looking for specific ones that might have a bit more, you know, nutrient punch than others, then things like broccoli is, is phenomenal. Talk about uh, nutrient density and, and activating some of these key pathways in the body that that help to protect, you know, genes and support longevity and, and whatnot is, uh, you know, you can start to dive into that. But I think Having worked with Dane a lot in the past, you know, this idea of preparation and meal prep, right? Like just having these things ready and around is so crucial, right? So that way when you're tired and you get home, it's a lot easier to make the right choice when it's sort of around you than, um, you know, yeah, when than if you really got to work hard power. for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your environment shapes your choices, you know, and that's why all these convenience foods are causing such a problem because they permit people to not plan. And then inevitably you just grab what's convenient. And one of the big takeaways is that, Every decision you make is going to be on a spectrum. It's not bad and it's not good. It's if you're making a choice that isn't serving you necessarily, whether your goal is, let's say, lose weight or get healthier, what can you do that's just a little bit better? You know, like inch a little bit closer to making, a, like a more consistently making a, a more positive decision. And if you are sourcing your own food and planning ahead, generally you're going to be making better decisions bit by bit and, and taking that approach um, instead of being so extreme is a way that we can avoid this vilification of macronutrients and vilifications of, you know, meat or veggies or whatever. Um, for example, did you see, Mark, I don't know if you heard in the news, but red meat is healthy again. It's hard to keep up, Dane. It's a, it's a <laughs> yeah. roller coaster. You know, and you can, you can appreciate why the general public are just throw their hands up and decide to give up because it's like they read one thing one day about eggs or meat or whatever it is. And the next week it's horrible for you. And it's sort of like, you know, you start to lose faith and, and, you, and people just kind of throw their hands up in the air. So it's, uh, but it's funny, you mentioned on that preparation side, I just thought I'd share, you know, I've got a growing number of clients who are from Italy and it's like, if people make pasta in Italy or make dinner, I mean, they make dinner, it takes an hour and a half and everyone's standing yeah. around and chit chatting and talking and connecting and yeah, they're drinking wine. But that whole part of the process is kind of a key part of that connectivity piece and sharing. And and I was blown away because um, Dr. Javier Gonzalez at um, Bath University was sharing some some research around how things as little as fidgeting are significant enough to contribute to weight loss. And so if you think of pottering around the kitchen, actually rolling out the pasta, like yeah. you know, these are some things that if people want to have friends over or. or you know, whatever on a Friday night, then sometimes maybe it's making the food together rather than having it all prepped by the time somebody comes over and enjoying that, that sort of experience, you know, things that can make it kind of fun and engaging, I think is, is crucial. Cause yeah, just as you mentioned, Dana, I mean, none of these, the irony is all these countries that live the longest, none of them are counting their calories or macros. No, no. That, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, but I mean, it, it's, it tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah. And the community piece is so huge because that that's like one of our move daily five health pillars. And it's the one that if you count your macros, you get your gym workouts in, but you have absolutely no community experience within all of that. We see a health cost. 
And um, with regards to the meal prep alone, I think a lot of people, when they spend more time with their meal prep, they actually build a little bit more awareness around what they put in their mouth. And I have a question. In the UK, did they do they have a, a food guide that's similar to Canada's food guide that just got changed that actually encourages people to cook more at home? They have their food guide does include that. It doesn't actually the updated Canadian version is a little bit more got some applause over here in the UK with some of the recommendations. But I think that's a great, you know, especially with the younger with having kids around and younger kids, it's, it, that's time spent with family, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's an opportunity to do those kind of things and I mean, I, I laugh because when I was in high school, like if you took a cooking course in high school, they taught you how to bake a tiramisu, you know, like it was so, <laughs> it didn't make any sense. Like, how is this going to help me? And you see just this whole wave of everyone who goes to university doesn't know what the heck they're doing in the kitchen, right? It's like, it's just warfare in the first couple of years and, you know, in terms of like the fire alarms going off and everything else. And you just think, geez, like what a great place to start, wouldn't it be to, in high school to just say, hey, this is how you cook some straightforward meals that are, you know some healthy proteins, veggies, yeah. et cetera. But uh, it just, it's amazing how that doesn't happen. Well, I, yeah, I didn't realize that um, until a friend pointed out that my family was a little bit quote unquote weird because there are three of us and um, I have two brothers and we got to cook a meal together every week. So one of us would take the main, one of us would take the salad. And that was a night that we would have a dessert as well. And we'd rotate. So by the time we went off to university, we actually, we knew how to cook a fair bit. And um, by contrast, I used to cook a ton and all my roommates loved it because none of them knew how to cook. So there were a lot of like pop tarts and pizza pockets <laughs> and, and weird things, but yeah, there are what a lot else of goes into a toaster. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> yeah, that and that is how I ate in undergrad yeah. before I started getting super interested in nutrition. Was yeah. literally what is the most you know processed food I can find that's not going to go bad, so that I don't waste any money. Like buying a head of lettuce was just dangerous because I don't want to waste that two or three dollars. Crazy. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Exactly. Right. Right? I mean, it's, uh, but yeah, it is amazing. I mean, um, in um, Epstein's new book, Range, which has that expert generalist uh, yes. theme to it, you know, it's amazing because he goes through just the ability to actually problem solve in a lot of the elite universities around the world and how it's actually not a very, it's a skill that's even developed as much as we think it is. And you think of even, again, high school or whether it's university and the skills that the courses that we take that we don't ever use or don't, don't influence us or that we're literally just memorizing. And just as you mentioned, uh, Freya, you know, if you could learn the skill of, of cooking, which in and of itself is problem solving because things go wrong, you time. know, it's, it's, it's like, a, it's such a great place to start. And I think that's, that, that's a huge piece of, uh, the health puzzle. And I think it's yeah. cool for, for practitioners like us to then say to people, Hey, you know what? You're 38, 48, 58. You're actually, you need to learn how to prepare food better, you know, like, let's dive into this, let's explore. And let's, because, you know, once you learn how to do it, it actually takes a lot less time than you think. But I think for most people, that first time takes so long because you're yeah. not accustomed to it, that it puts people off, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it is much like any new skill set. And people, uh, we wish that there was basic body education in elementary schools because it's that kind of fear that people have around the kitchen around prep and then mm -hmm. the same is true when they're when they get injured there's this fear and then they stop using it even more instead of realizing actually that body part may have gotten hurt because it 
it was only being used one way, like always the computer yeah, or something. Exactly uh, so that right. Variability. And this is kind of related um, in terms of variability. Can you touch on some of the current research with regards to microbiome and digestion? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a fascinating topic for sure. You know, I think in, in very broad strokes, sometimes in sort of functional or naturopathic medicine, we tend to overemphasize certain things or put too much emphasis. And then I think if you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum in terms of, you know, tip, standard medicine, we tend, there tends to be not enough or, or complete dismissal of certain things. So we, with the research around the microbiome, we see more and more coming out. And so we see in terms of traditional medicine, the biggest thing we can say now in the research is that diversity in the gut tends to be strongly associated with good health. And so, you know, how do you have a diverse gut? Well, we know that people who eat processed food tend to have low diversity. And there was actually a, a researcher named Lauren Peterson who worked at the Jackson Laboratory in the U.S. And she did some work on downhill mountain bike racers. And they'd taken antibiotics and they were split into two groups. There's a placebo group um, as well as a group that was a sedentary group. And well, the cyclists who took it, a few weeks later, they were eating a good diet. They were taking a probiotic. Their, their microbiome diversity you know, replenished within a few weeks. So, so it bounced back, which is ideal. It's what we want. It, it shows that there's a robustness there. The immune system's working effectively. The people who had the standard American diet who took a round of broad-spectrum antibiotics like amoxicillin, which you know commonly prescribed if you're, if you're sick, a year later, they still had 90% eradication of diversity, which is you know, mind boggling. I mean, it's you really terrifying. have to, you really have to, it is terrifying. So this is where just the minimal amount of diversity can help. And, you know, there's some cool suggestions. Uh, there's a researcher over here as well called a Spanish researcher called Miguel uh, Tribio Mateas, who has a 50 food challenge. Now for some people that might be too many foods, but you know, this idea <laughs> of trying to, you know, expand your repertoire, let's challenge yourself to eat 20 different foods or 30 different foods or whatever it might be in a week. Because that diversity is going to help uh, the gut biome. And I think sometimes we might put too much emphasis on specific foods being kind of magical for the gut biome where, you know, yeah. diversity is really key. And then the great studies on athletes just show that, you know, having a good aerobic base is great. So studies in rugby players showed that uh, actually protein intake and aerobic fitness dovetailed really strongly with with gut diversity as well. So, you know, those pers and that, for myself in clinical practice, working with really persistent cases and through colleagues, what you tend to find with those folks is just a lack of aerobic base. You know, they bounce around with taking all these different supplement protocols and everything else for whether it's SIBO or a persistent gut issue. And if all we do is get their aerobic base up, all of a sudden, a lot of that, you know, dysbiotic terrain clears up and they get a, a better, uh, you know, a better long-term effect. So it's a, you know, Again, it gets back to the whole move daily, right? I mean, it's like you got to think outside the box sometimes if you're in medicine and say, hey, we need to just upgrade the, you know, that aerobic capacity and that's going to really help to support the gut. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and another really good uh, feather in our cap for move daily, as you said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think I saw a study the other day, you know, a lot of people come to me for help with weight loss. And I think I saw a study the other day where, you know, you hear a lot out there saying, oh, if you reduce sugar, that's going to help. If you increase protein, that's going to help. And for sure, um, in a vacuum, great advice. Yeah. Um, but what I saw in that study was actually the biggest factor was the people who increased fiber the most were the ones who actually had the most long-term weight loss. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you look at different studies around, you know, sometimes what, what are the sort of the proxies for these types of things? And it's like, well, 
if you're eating more fiber, then you're definitely eating more real food, right? Mm-hmm. Typically more vegetables, you know, more fruit as well. And so, yeah, I mean, that could definitely be a great, uh, great advice. You know, it's a low, low energy intake foods that make you feel full. Um, and so, like you said, I think in a vacuum, it's great advice. I think just the one caveat, you know, and as you would, you know, as you know, with your clients, Dan, is that sometimes if you just, if you become a bit reductionist and you're just trying to push fiber intake, Mm-hmm. And all, all of a sudden clients are bloated and discomfort mm-hmm. and yet they're still trying to add more broccoli on. And it's like, <laughs> okay, we've, we've got to find the right amount. You know, at some point you're at the top of the bell curve and we're all a little bit different. So some people might tolerate 60, 70, 80 grams of fiber, like this really fibrous diets. Whereas for others, it could just lead to, you know, some real disasters. And you can often see that with <laughs> IBS clients as well, right? Yeah. Just, the typical thing oh, is, well, yeah. more fiber is better. And so, um, not always better to jam more fiber on top of stuff that might not already be moving well or already irritating the gut. But again, this kind of goes back to that whole spectrum thing where it's like, how can oh, we increase sure. something good bit by bit, you know, <laughs> let's not go from 10 to hundred. <laughs> yeah. When you increase fiber again, yeah, you tend to increase all these foods that are tremendously healthy for you, right? Like you're eating more berries, you're eating more broccoli, you're eating more of these foods we want to get in. And so I think that's, uh, you know, it's a little bit like when we look at the sodium studies, you know, sodium intake tends to to track right along with processed food intake, right? So it's really telling yeah. you more about how much processed food somebody eats than really it's not the fact that they're just adding loads and loads of table salt to all their meals, right? Oh yeah. You can't add that much salt. Like you can't add as much salt as you can find in processed food to natural food. Like nobody would sit there and put that much salt on their plate. Yeah. No, it would just look obscene, right? It was, yeah, if you have a can <laughs> of soup, I mean, you're going to hit your daily intake almost of, of sodium. So it's- uh, Yeah, immediately. Now, with regards to other elements of recovery, can you speak to the importance of sleep for overall health? Yeah, I mean, it's sleep's such a fascinating. I mean, the last decade on sleep's been incredible, and docs and researchers like Dr. Shuri Ma, whose original work at Harvard University in athletes, she was actually studying the cognitive benefits of sleep extension, right? Of adding more hours uh, nightly and weekly to an athlete's uh, regime to see what kind of cognitive benefits they would get. And of course, all these athletes were rolling in saying, I just PR'd in this lift or this, you know, swim, I had a personal best. And so all of a sudden, the, the focus shifted to, wait a minute, let's let's track some performance outcomes. And so that was the kicking off a lot of the research showing us that all these you know, athletes are getting benefits in terms of sprint speed, you know, skill, uh, strength, all these things. And so when I was looking around this, uh, you know, recovery, and obviously recovery is a huge science as well these days. And trying to get away, well, trying to differentiate for folks between the strategies that we read about of like, hey, is it cryotherapy? Is it ice bath? Is it compression garments? Like, yeah, those things are important. But when you when you talk to performance staffs, you know, Lachlan Penfold was performance director for Golden State Warriors. And, you know, I talk about his recovery pyramid in the book about how, you know, sleep, nutrition, and mental emotional stress are the base of the pyramid. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it doesn't matter. Uh, I forget his quote there, but uh, Lachlan was saying, you know, if, if you if you fuck up the training plan or the sleep, then it doesn't matter how many ice baths you do. And apologies for swearing on your podcast if that's the no, you know, that's out there. But that, I thought that was a great quote, right? That's like if you if you don't have their sleep dialed in or nutrition, this mental emotional stress, this other twenty two hours that we talked about, if your training plan isn't on point, if that's not where you're putting your emphasis, and you're just dialed into what supplement should I take for recovery or how many ice baths should I do? you're never going to, you know, you're never going to move the needle. And so, and I think sleep is still one when you, you know, and, and when I was speaking with, with some of the experts around, we know the science now, but getting athletes to do it even 
Yeah. Some of the questions come around, well, this athlete's staying up later to get treatment from a therapist. And so now this, you know, these debates going on, well, hey, is it better for this athlete to get eight hours of sleep or stay up an hour and a half later to get some treatment? And I think that's where it gets kind of interesting because I know obviously in the sleep world, we're going to be quick to tell you that, you know, get that sleep in and find some time in another part of the day for, for therapy. But uh, I suppose the physios and therapists might give you another answer. <laughs> Well, yeah. And some of that too is about, it depends on where the athlete is in their um, competition stage. If they're at a point where they would gain mental and emotional benefit from seeing that therapist For and sure. because yeah. of their belief in that, then that alone can override. Cause like if, if they're just going to be stressing and not sleeping because they're afraid that, Oh, I didn't get that one last little tweak um, right the day before their competition, then that can undermine. So it's such an interesting juggle to play. But with our average active person, we will often tell people like, I don't want you to go to the gym at five in the morning if it means that you only had four hours sleep. Yeah, that that was more straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I have a personal question for you, Mark. I know that, you know, you're – all the time, you're you're seeing all this new research on sleep and you're living this and you're writing about it in peak – um, and you have a one, a three, and a six-year-old, so your sleep is fantastic right now, right? Oh, and that's that's the reality, right? It's like uh, we were just talking before the podcast. Like I think I'm going on half a decade of not enough sleep. It's incredibly so ironic. Think, so I think some of this stuff is a bit like, well, we still need people to be robust. So just as you mentioned, Freya, this belief system of we have to watch we don't become fragile in the sense of if someone doesn't get their eight hours, all of a sudden you know, yeah. the sky is falling and I can't write this test or do this workout or, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's okay to, to, to miss some sleep. Now, obviously with, you know, parents of young children, it does accumulate, but I think that's where then you start to think about, okay, if I can only get six hours a night because of my job and my kids, et cetera, how do I increase my weekly sleep time? Mm-hmm. Can I add some naps in? Can I do a 20 minute, you know, eyes closed? And even though it's not a lot of time, it still does, you know, contribute. So for me, those are the places that I try to go to be able to to ramp that up. And again, real world scenarios, you know, this is, it, you know, some nights get pretty ugly with people being up all night and whatever else. And that's where you, yeah, you got to figure out. And as you mentioned, Freya, like, okay, well, today I'm not going to hit that heavy lifting session. Mm-hmm. You know, I might, I might change my workout now. I might, you know, I think go that's where we do need to be nimble and, and with, with what's going on. And, and actually, from a sleep perspective, it's fascinating because some researchers will tell you, you can never catch up. Yes, but others, yeah, others like Dr. Amy Bender. I think this is sort of maybe just resonates with me. So perhaps it's a bias, but from an evolutionary perspective, it sounds kind of weird that you know, if if, if mom's having kids, that once she's sleep deprived, which goes hand in hand, she could never then, you know, quote unquote, catch up with her sleep. So mm-hmm. uh, there is this idea around efficiency as well. So again, not an excuse to get less sleep, but this idea of again, if your work life, family life is starting to impede the total amount you could get, then you can still be robust and resilient, but you've got to be more mindful now of some of those other pieces that are going in. So whether it's the nutrition piece, the mental emotional stress piece, the training plan, like those things need to be really thought out. And when you can get more sleep, you know, more naps on the weekend or whatever it is, then uh, then absolutely you got to got to do it. On the topic of naps, is there, from the research you understand, is there a best way to nap? I've heard that the best types of naps you can get are either a quick power nap from about 15 to 30 minutes or make them a little bit longer and go to a full 90 minutes so that you can actually get into a, a full sleep cycle, but try and aim for one or the other. 
Yeah, I mean, when there's a little bit of debate between the researchers of around, you know, some researchers will say you should get a full sleep cycle and try to wake up, and others will say, you know, as long as you avoid sleep inertia, which is basically, uh, you know, when you wake up and you feel groggy after you've taken your nap, right? Because you're waking up in a lower, um, you know, in a trough of your sleep cycle. So it does vary a little bit person to person. And so, you know, oftentimes they'll talk about, uh, you know, the sleep opportunity is kind of the lingo around, okay, you're going to give yourself this 30 minutes. So you set your timer and it's 30 minutes and, you know, whatever you get in that amount of time. You know, I think that's a, it's a nice suggestion with the 90 minutes because you typically do get a full sleep cycle. But depending on how long it takes that individual to actually kind of fall asleep, you know, they might notice that it might be a bit longer for them. So maybe it's actually like a two-hour sleep opportunity because it takes them a little bit longer than they realize to fall asleep. And then, you know, when they did the 90-minute nap, they actually woke up and felt a little rough around the edges, you know, versus the two-hour they woke up and felt great. So, yeah, I think those are kind of nice ideas around the shorter kind of power nap, which effectively you're not really falling asleep. But with eyes closed, you know, you're increasing alpha brainwave activity and getting some cognitive benefits. Or if you've got time trying to get, you know, a full sleep cycle in is, is pretty nice as well. And I think that'll just vary in terms of the, the best amount in that 90 to two hour mark, depending on the person. And I think a little, a little bonus for that short one is, you know, make a little uh, or take a shot of espresso before you fall asleep and have a nappuccino. <laughs> that's, that's another, you know, interesting one as well, right? Like it's uh, hey, if you like coffee, that's pretty cool. I will say that uh, Dr. Bog noted that the people in that study were very sleep deprived. So they fell asleep really fast during the nap. So just make sure that, uh, so maybe that is a good one for the people with young kids who aren't sleeping or, or whatnot. But uh, I mean, or if you like coffee, hey, it's a great way to get, get two enjoyable things at once, right? <laughs> now with, with social media at the helm of what a lot of people do, where do you see either athletes or general pot being misguided the most? I think you're seeing now in elite sport more time being spent on asking the question of why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, what are we trying to achieve? You know, what what is the problem we're trying to solve? Because I think with technology came out and everyone wants to use all these different devices and you've got teams and staffs using numerous devices and then all this data being churned out. And the reality is a lot of people don't know what it's telling us because there's just too much of it. And so you see a, a streaming, a trimming of some of the, what, what teams will use. And it's slightly different from team to team, but what they'll kind of hang their hat on, so to speak. And so I think for us, that's kind of a, you know, it's fun to kind of geek out obviously sometimes with HRV and all these different things. But I think yeah. if you're, if you're the general population, you, you got to be hopefully working with your trainer or somebody who's got some experience because the over-interpretation part of it is really potentially problematic. And you know, gets back to what you were saying there, Freya, about kind of belief systems and like, you know, you wake up and your HRV score is low and now all of a sudden your whole day is gone to, you know, and it's like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, you know, and, and oftentimes it is just a blip. And, you know, we see studies in sprinters on competition day, it's always extremely low in the morning and that's not indicative of anything wrong. It's just a natural response to to jitters before a competition. So it's, you know, I think when the, when the general public dabbles around in this stuff, we just got to watch, we don't start you know, over-interpreting and creating, you see this with a lot of the sleep tech, right? Like you're now going to give people sleep problems because they're trying to assess and evaluate their sleep. So, you know, intuitively and yeah, I mean, if you like this stuff, great, use it. If you don't, then, you know, most, a lot of these things aren't validated. So they're often not telling us as much as we think. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, if you've got a coach or somebody doing it with you, I think that's a crucial part because then you're going to avoid the, 
you know, <laughs> just thinking that the world's falling when really, you know, you'll be fine. I, I remember when I was competing, uh, I was at the Arnold World Championship for Strongman. I think it was in 2016. Anyway, I, I woke up in the I was using an HRV and I was pretty neurotic about it. And, you know, I'd, I deloaded and I was ready to rock. And I woke up the morning before the competition and I was like in the red. And I'm like, what? Like, how? How is this possible? And even though I'm, you know, I knew I'd recovered. I knew I deloaded. I knew I was good. It was just then in my head, right? So going into the competition, it was like, well, am I not going to be strong today? Because I'm in the red. Like, come on. So, you know, you have to be careful with this kind of stuff. Especially at that level. Because, I mean, just the the... I mean, when you're talking about that level, Dana, I mean, as you know, obviously you're competing in it, like the smallest margin of doubt yeah, is, is the difference, right? Between achieving the goals you want and podium or whatnot. I mean, it's, it's such fine lines, right? Yeah. And, and that day I, I tied for fourth and the top four qualified for the second day. And I lost on a, basically a coin flip to not make it to the second day. Oh, rough. It was a great time. Rough. <laughs> on the yeah, on the topic of gear gadgets, like I've competed in endurance sports a fair bit, and yeah. any of my endurance athletes, I actually because none, for the most part, it, the endurance athletes I coach are not elite elite, and I just tell them to ditch the gadgets because I find that in mainstream media they push gadgets so much and people forget how to listen to their own engines. And so mm -hmm. they miss all those red flags or little signs that they could have pushed more, or maybe they should have held back and avoided injury as a consequence of it because they were just so tied in to the numbers. And I actually remember one of the first races I did out West that's called the Grand Fondo. It goes from Vancouver up to uh, Whistler. It's 122 Beautiful. kilometers of climbing. It's gorgeous. Oh, gorgeous but painful. Yeah, a little bit. But it was my first time doing that. And we don't have as many hills to train on here in Ontario. So I did my best. And as I rode over Lionsgate, my computer <laughs> fell off <laughs> the bike. And I was like, <laughs> cool. So I've got another four hours of climbing and I have no idea. And it was probably the best thing that happened to that because I was so used to training with gear and without uh, like tracking gear that I was just like, you know what? Cool. Today I get to just li listen to the engine and enjoy the view. And it was probably the best thing because when you're on hills like that, uh, you are not going to maintain the pace that you maintain in Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. No matter what. So for, for our listeners, can you give us a very brief synopsis of what they can expect out of Peak, your newest book? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the new book is just all about trying to connect people with a lot of these experts on the front lines and performance and professional sport and what they're doing with to be able to fuel and then help athletes achieve their world-class results. And I, it's, it's not so much the shiny new toy and the new tech as you were talking about there. You know, when you see these across all these different domains, it's really an emphasis on the fundamentals. And so, you know, we go through the first section on athlete health and how that's now become an important piece of, of performance. And so that's got to resonate with, again, the rest of us trying to survive of like, if you're not in good health and how are you ever going to achieve your weight loss goal or that, half marathon or marathon goal because the best of the best are thinking about athlete health and you know we know now that from an endurance sport and in particular that poor health which is basically frequent illness frequently being run down that's just incompatible with elite performance because you just can't show up enough to train and and, and keep up with the competition so you know there's that section on the health piece and then we talk nutrition in the second section and that's around body composition endurance sport or, or team sport and again connecting people with some of the researchers that are doing some of this work and 
from there, there's a recovery section and a mindset. So you can really kind of jump into any chapter and, 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 and sink your teeth into that and connect yourself with a lot of the world leaders and, and, and what's going on. And yeah, you know, it's all about upgrading health, upgrading performance. And, uh, you know, hopefully people can take a few things away to be able to improve their health or upgrade their performance. Oh, that sounds awesome, man. It's like a, like a performance Bible. <laughs> on the fundamentals as opposed to there the you go. yeah exactly there you go. the hard the hard answers that work so mark we have a few final wrap-up questions that we ask all of our guests nice. so the first one is aside from peak what is the most impactful book you've read in the past year in the past year i would say impactful would be david epstein's new book range I love so the, that theme, the theme of that one's expert generalism. And when I did my undergrad in, in sciences 20 years ago, that was what I did was integrated sciences. And it was like, uh, it was, it was such a great treat to be able to think in that way. And then it took me probably 20 years to get back to it, but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see how getting some experience across multiple domains can really be a powerful way to, to problem solve and to yeah. come up with solutions and, you know, you guys do that every day with, with, you know, whether it's exercise, nutrition, all these things together. But I think, uh, you know, for a lot of listeners, it's a pretty cool way to see the world. Yeah. I've, I read that book and, uh, referred a couple clients to getting it because I think we get so locked down in reductionism and specialization. I was so happy when I saw that he wrote that book because I really enjoyed sporting, but range is something I feel like we needed <laughs> at this particular point in time when everyone wants to get into like those little specifics and understanding that like your body and your brain really benefit from a broad domain of skill sets. And he yeah. highlighted that well. Absolutely. On that note, what is your non-negotiable daily self-care tool or habit? You got a lot going on. You got a lot of demands. <laughs> what do you well, do to take care I'll of you? I'll probably share with you one that I'm not doing well enough at that, um, <laughs> you know, I think when, you know, again, when life gets in the way, and I'm sure a lot of listeners, and especially, you know, if you're a personal trainer or coach, you know, you're working long hours as well. Like when things get busy and, you know, maybe there's kids at home, maybe not, but all of a sudden there's just fewer hours in the day and things just inevitably get cut. And for me, in terms of the the exercise piece of one of them is not training as much as I'd like to. And it's, it's more, and the things that came up for me were just around the aches and niggles and things that started to creep up from not training enough, moving enough. Mm -hmm. And then the, the decompression piece, the stress relief piece. And so unfortunately for me, that's kind of gone has been less than what I'd want. And, and even getting out to play sports like basketball, which is the community piece that we talked about before of just being able to connect with other people. So those are the daily self-care things that I'm working on right now because they're not happening nearly as much as they need to. And I can feel the effects, you know, yeah. you can really feel the difference. And so I think that's, Hey, if, I'm sure a lot of people are struggling with similar things and it's, how do we, how do you figure out that way to I'm going to build it back into your routine? And I'm, I'm working on that right now. And hopefully uh, some of your listeners are as well. I'm sure that a lot of listeners will connect with that and they tend to appreciate when they hear that, you know what, health professionals know and, we all have to work on it in different capacities as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're never quite there. Right. So it's always about uh, getting back to work and, and, and trying to move forward. Right. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. And that's another place where social media really misleads us a lot. Cause you have all these, you know, quote unquote experts out there on social media that have their, you know, hour and a half morning routine. And then they go to the gym for three hours and then go to yoga and then have their perfectly made meal and all this crap. And it's like, that's just not the reality for the vast majority of people out there. We all have things to work on. And it's, you know, once you get one thing going, another thing might drop. And that's just kind of the the ongoing challenge of health, right? 
one percent forward every day. Yeah, one percent forward. There you go. A great, so, great advice, man. <clears throat> so if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you try and impart to help them with their well being? In five minutes. Elevator pitch. Uh, <laughs> elevator pitch. Yeah, I mean I think uh obviously I have a bias to nutrition. Um, (laughs) movement is, is obviously super key as well, but I think, you know, when we look at around just health and longevity of warding off dementias, cognitive decline, you know, heart attacks, poor health as we get older, being sharp when we're younger, blood glucose control is a pretty darn good way of, of being able to mitigate a lot of those things. And so again, rather than thinking of what exact diet is great for me, you can use, you know, glucose control, you know, it's fasting glucose, HA1C and hopefully even a, a third marker, which is your response postprandial to, to meals, that'll start to tell you exactly what you run best on. And, you know, for a lot of us, it might be different than what we think, or there might be a nuance to it that's unexpected. And so I think that uh, just to keep experimenting with the nutrition, you know, it's hugely important for your health, build in that community part to it, make it fun as well, you know, enjoy life, but also, uh, you know, if you're struggling with poor health, fatigue, not achieving your performance goals. And you've got to keep, keep working on that one for sure. Absolutely. And last but not least, where can people find you? People can uh, connect with me on social media. It's uh, at Dr. Bubs. I've got a funny last name, so you can uh, (laughs) D-R-B-U-B-B-S and that's, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then uh, the website's drbubs.com. And if you're looking for content around the book, you'll find a link there to athleteevolution.org. And that is uh, for all the info around Peak and some of the feedback we've gotten from uh, from other colleagues. Excellent. And um, we will link in all of those to the show notes to make sure that people have access. And you do do some online coaching. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So online uh, support clients and, uh, you know, America, UK, around the world. So if people do want to connect, then yeah, definitely reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. It's great to chat with you again. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. And uh, I think it's a little bit later there than it is here. So we will release you to get some of that ever important sleep. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, Mark. Talk to you later, man. Take care. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.